from Kirko Media. So what you gonna do about it? We're here once again with our Russian expert, Columbia professor Timothy Fry and Jane Albrecht, our co-host. We're going to dig a bit deeper into the real story behind the complicated relationship Russia has with the U.S. And this isn't just the typical U.S. rhetoric. This is more about Russia's perspective. You should know this. So buckle in. This is politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. What do you think the next step might be where the U.S. could make a move that would, in fact, set the relationship between the U.S. and Russia into a more positive track? Being realistic, their relationship right now is so stuck that it's going to take a long time to really turn the relationship around. Some areas where there are possibilities for joint gains are in restaffing the embassies in both countries at levels that would allow the normal flow of diplomatic exchange and tourist travel. Right now, staffing at the U.S. Embassy is so down in Russia that many Russians to come to the United States are having to go to third countries to get their visas issued to come to the United States. And that's not in our interests. You know, I think the U.S. only wins when there's more exchange between U.S. and Russia. And that is a very small thing. And I was hopeful that the summit in Geneva would yield an agreement on that, but they couldn't even agree on that small detail. A next step would be in nuclear arms control. This is an area where historically there has been some possibility for joint gains between both sides when there is a determination to try to repair a very fractured relationship before you take on the really difficult issues like the security of Ukraine, like security issues in Europe, taking on the rise of China. Now, these are really difficult, contentious issues, cyber hacking. But before we get to those more complicated issues, more prosaic issues like diplomatic staffing and arms control would be a good first step. You know, we have such short-term thinking here in the U.S. Our presidents are elected for four years, maybe eight. And in Putin's case, partially because of some uh, proposals that they rewrote, apparently eliminating the records of his first couple of terms, he might be in power to uh, 2036. Is that what it is? That's right. The Constitution was rewritten, very quickly ratified, almost no opposition. Surprise, surprise to these amendments. Talk to that for a minute, because you wrote it brilliantly in your book, talking about all the other cool stuff that he added to the proposal that would keep him in office for an extra 12 years. It's a fascinating case of uh, constitutional re-engineering. And this is something that autocrats often do. All the autocrats of Central Asia, Belarus, Azerbaijan, and in his neighborhood have done similar moves to try to expand their power. In order to change the constitution in Russia, you need the approval of both houses, plus the approval of two-thirds of the regions, and it all must be done in a very short period of time. So it's a very difficult thing to do. But given how concentrated political power is in Russia, Putin was easily able to push this through. But he also added a public referendum to approve the constitutional changes to give a veneer of legitimacy 
And of course, there was a lot of finagling about how votes were counted and how they were cast. And he also made the vote an up or down vote on changes to the Constitution as a whole. And he also included increases in the minimum wage, increases in pensions, popular ideas like the defense of traditional marriages, defense of the Russian language, just to ensure that these measures passed. He layered on all of these popular measures, because if it had been an up or down vote on whether or not Putin would be allowed to run again for another term, it's very uncertain how that would have come down. In the polling on that particular question, about as many Russians were in favor of allowing Putin to extend his term as who were opposed. It's just brilliant. Tim, certainly, especially with U.S. media, the reputation of Russia's impact on U.S. presidential campaigns in 2016 and then again in 2020, uh, they seem pretty busy over here. What are actually their goals and what do you see as the solution there for the U.S. going forward? So we need to separate two different activities that uh, the Russians were engaged in in 2016. One was the social media attempts on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, to try to create and exacerbate political division, to try to change how people voted. And I think if we look at those efforts closely, it's difficult to find much evidence that they had an effect. The scale of Russia's social media efforts were just a tiny, tiny fraction of all efforts on Facebook and on Twitter. And most of their efforts were simply replicating pro-Trump voices. And it's very difficult to say that those efforts really changed turnout or made people more likely to vote for Trump than for Clinton. What was much more concerning was the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and the leaking of emails about how the Democratic Party ran its campaign. And in this case, I think the U.S. media really did itself a disservice by publishing these purloined emails as if they were legitimate news stories and as if they weren't systematically leaked by the Russians and by WikiLeaks with the specific intent of damaging Hillary Clinton. And I think the U.S. media could have done a much better job of putting those leaked emails, which is basically opposition research, in context so that average citizens could understand that this is just another example of political warfare. Didn't the Putin administration blame Hillary for certain types of protests that took place in Russia? Well, yeah, Putin and Hillary have a notoriously chilly relationship. And it goes back to 2011 when she was the secretary of state and massive protests broke out in Moscow after fraudulent parliamentary elections in 2011 that were supported by uh, Hillary Clinton, then as Secretary of State, to say, you know, we support the right of the Russian people to engage in peaceful protests, which is hardly a, a controversial opinion. Putin took great umbrage with this, 
Later, she uh, also referred to Putin as having a foreign policy akin to Hitler after the annexation of Crimea, which in Russia, given the losses surrounding World War II, to equate anybody with Hitler is a very, very serious charge. So I'm sure he took great delight in seeing her lose the 2016 presidential election. Didn't he accuse her of actually paying protesters? Yes, he accused her of paying protesters, but that was made of whole cloth. Russians don't need to be paid to protest. And actually, those protests were remarkable because they were unplanned. They surprised everybody. And I was in actually Moscow at that time, and all of the political observers were saying, oh, this parliamentary election, it's going to be a snooze. Nothing's going to come of it. And then we saw 60,000 people on the streets in Moscow a week after the votes were cast. We'll be right back with Timothy Fry. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. So, Tim, I can't help myself for just a second. It just seems like Donald Trump went to school on Putin and his success in so many different ways, his replacing of oligarchs and the influence and power that gave him the... uh, delegitimizing elections, or in Putin's case, I understand that uh, in order to be on the ballot and be one of his opponents, you have to get a certain number of signatures. And if your signatures are thought to be more than 10% fraudulent, then you get thrown off the ballot. And magically, some of his opponents got thrown off the ballot. And it just seems that Donald Trump went to school on Putin and tried to do a lot of the same things that brought Putin to power. And even to the point where Trump felt that he could change the term of an American president. A lot there, isn't there? Yeah, and it's more than just Putin, too. I mean, this is right out of the autocrats' playbook. To delegitimize elections as a way of selecting the leader of a country. And Trump was doing this in 2016 before he won. When the polls were showing that he was likely to lose, he was already sowing seeds of doubt. Calling his political opponent a criminal and saying that you know Hillary should be put in jail during the campaign, that that's the same kind of things that autocrats do to try to delegitimize the opposition. Floating these trial balloons about extending your term in office just to see what will happen. These are often you know, attempts just to gauge the possibility of what is possible, let alone all of the self-dealing and you know, cronyism Uh, that took place under the Putin administration. And that's one thing we see in all autocracies. You very rarely find a poor autocrat, right? They all get rich off their position. And certainly that was one of the attractions for President Trump when he was in office. The more intriguing question for me in the end is just whether Putin did have something on Trump. In the early days, I didn't buy it. But as I watched Trump's reaction to certain actions by Russia, Even in Trump world, it made no sense unless Putin really had something on on Trump. What was your gut instinct after watching this whole dance? I'm skeptical 
that they have something on Trump that would be so damaging that he would take the positions that he has. But it is really puzzling the way Trump toadied up to not just Putin, but to Kim Jong-un, to Duterte in the Philippines, so, you know, who has had drug dealers executed, to Erdogan, he'd like to play the tough guy. But with Putin, it was even something more. I think that if Putin wanted to really entrap Trump, I think they would have done more to allow him to build his hotel prior to become president. And that would have given him a lot more leverage over Trump than uh, he exerted. With the other autocrats, Trump's financial interests made sense in terms of why he cozied up to them. With Putin, it didn't make sense. And there's something there, whether it was financial loans that they would have influence on him. The way he toadied up to them was way beyond anything that almost anything else would explain. Yeah. I I mean, it's certainly possible. I think Trump just wanted to be him. He wanted to be Putin. He looked at every single move that Putin made during his rise to power and how he stayed in power, how he treated his opponents, how he could take a guy off a plane and jail a guy like Navalny and I think that Trump looked at him as the chef that Trump wanted to be. This is uh, a question that I struggle to answer in part because it goes to the two areas where I'm least comfortable. One is trying to be a psychologist and to put Donald Trump on the couch, which, you know, is certainly a plausible thing to do. The other is to speculate about evidence that we just don't have. That makes me uncomfortable as well. Uh, But I am really puzzled how President Trump in Helsinki in 2018 could have sided with Vladimir Putin over charges that he had interfered in the 2016 presidential election over the wisdom of his national security advisors. Well, you know, it could have been it could have been in that situation that I believe that there was collaboration between the Russians and the Trump campaign. Sure. It very well could be in that sense that the one thing he never would have wanted to come out was proof of that collaboration, because one of his great sensitivities was that he didn't legitimately win the election. I think that's absolutely right. That level of collaboration was insufficient, really, or maybe unneeded even to push Trump over the top. But, you know, clearly the relationship between Manafort and his advisors, clients, if you will, in Ukraine and their clients back in Moscow, clearly that there was some level of collaboration. What I am cautious about is trying to then attribute that collaboration as the main, you know, as a big reason why Trump was able to win in 2016. Just Elections are very complicated things. There's a lot going on. I'm more agnostic in saying that I'm not comfortable saying that this had a big impact. Don't want to dismiss it, but I really want to leave it much more an open question. That's a different question, whether it had an impact, is whether there was improper collaboration. That's right. Absolutely, there was. Yeah. He wasn't worried about criminal charges at the time because I think he, he had enough hubris to think I can resist that. I think it was the political delegitimization of his. He was very sensitive about that. But there were other things 
that Trump went along with, even if he admired Putin. That's right. Where basically Putin did things that were so antithetical to U.S. interests that it made no sense to me. If Putin said Trump, Trump would say how high. And that's where it began to make no sense. Honestly, I think you're both overcomplicating it. I think that Putin was Trump's hero. <laughs> Trump wanted to figure out how to become Putin in, in the U.S. He thought that that was possible. <laughs> For me, it just makes sense. Wait a second. Wait a second. You mean he really liked that picture of Putin on the horse? Oh, good God. Please keep your shirt on. <laughs> that inspired him. <laughs> <laughs> on medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Let's jump to the recent summit in Geneva between Putin and Biden. And what did you think of this summit? What did you think were the goals going in? And then let's talk a little about the respective press conferences. So the goals going in, both sides really worked hard to minimize expectations and to remind people that no big agreement was going to come out of this summit, uh, as is often the case. Usually there's a buildup of months where the two sides are working on agreements and then they get assigned at the summit. None of that was expected to happen and none of it did happen. I think it was helpful just for the White House to meet with Putin, but also not to elevate Putin too much. So you notice that there were separate press conferences, not a joint press conference, which I thought was a very smart thing to do. Putin would like to go mano a mano with Biden to try to make it seem as if Russia is the equal of the United States and Putin is the equal of Biden. And that's not something, an image that the U.S. wanted to send. There was no invitation to President Putin to the White House, which often is one of the things that comes from a summit meeting. So the White House tried to hold the meeting to try to put a floor under a relationship that is badly, badly fractured. But at the same time, they didn't want to reward Putin and elevate his position by giving him equal stage with Biden. The other clever thing that the White House did was, yes, you know, having a summit with Putin gives him a platform, but it also gave a platform for Alexei Navalny. Reporters' questions about Navalny made Putin uncomfortable. And, you know, President Biden, that was one of the first things that he brought up. So, Oh, come on. Putin was brilliant in how he diverted that question when an American journalist asked him about his tactics of jailing his opponent or, or worse. He masterfully deflected the question by claiming that the U.S. does exactly the same thing by prosecuting the January 6th insurrectionists. I just thought that that was absolutely brilliant. I was less persuaded, to be honest. I thought <laughs> Putin in these kinds of settings is very good. He's always prepared. He is always forceful. But at the same time, I saw nothing new in Putin's performance. You know, he's been doing this for 20 years, and I don't think he came off particularly well this time around. I thought he was a little aggravated. And instead of making a defense about Russia's position in the world, every answer was an example of this kind of whataboutism, sometimes in a way that's helpful. 
but often in a way that is a stretch. For example, the poisoning of your main political opponent in jailing on trumped up parole violation charges is hardly the same thing as trying to jail people who intervene to try to stop the peaceful transfer of power and the counting of ballots. So I say on style points, Putin is great. On substance, not so great. I don't think anybody was fooled. Not even the Russian people were fooled. Yes. But my attraction to it was the smoothness yeah. of his diverting the question, because he's asked a really tough question. Yes. Should you be able to kill and jail your opponents? To say, here, look at what America does. He is very good in those settings. He's been doing it for a long time, and he always comes prepared. He is very rarely caught off guard. I'm just curious, Tim, what harm would it do if the U.S. realized that the way to Putin's heart and, in fact, a relationship with Russia is to do things that make Putin look good inside Russia, to make him more popular, to make him look like a success, to, in fact, be one of Putin's tools to a continued rule in Russia, what harm would it do if we went down that path? For one, this is really a question for the Russian people to decide. And I would love to see the day when Putin stands for election with a level playing field against his political opponents. Well, he's not going to. Yeah. So what could motivate him to work with us? The concern would be that this would only entrench Putin's power and keep him in office longer than even the Russian people would like, because there is a good deal of Putin fatigue in Russia. He's been in power a long time. Even people who have supported Putin in the past are eager to see a rotation in power and to see a new face. So I don't think that, A, we should be taking steps to strengthen a regime that deals with its political opponents so harshly, even when the threat posed by someone like Navalny is really not that great, I would be concerned that strengthening the regime would only exacerbate those tendencies to try to stamp out any portion of civil society. Because what we've seen in the past is Russian politics becomes more liberal when oil prices go down, for example when the central government is weaker and the regional governments are more powerful, that is the time when we see more political openness, more political pluralism. And I worry that taking steps to give Putin even more power would make it even more difficult to protect, you know, kind of basic human and political rights. It's a big bet that something is going to change that will bring Putin out of office. And also, we're making the assumption that if Putin does leave office now before 2036, that he wouldn't make sure that his successor is someone who has an equal relationship with the U.S. Our attitude of let's not help Putin, therefore let's not have a good relationship with Russia, is a questionable move. I agree with Tim fundamentally. While we've talked on this show about how mistakes that the U.S. made in the early years of Putin, I don't think that the answer to improving U.S.-Russia relations is to go out of our way to help him domestically. I think the only way forward is you take small, concrete steps together to put the relationship on a 
more stable footing? As a minimum, we might try to minimize the damage. So relations are always going to be difficult. They're always going to be complicated, but they don't need to be as bad as they are right now. And that's where good diplomacy and management can help. We seem to have this now competitive, somewhat strained relationship with the heir apparent to the largest economy in the world. Tell me, what is the relationship between Russia and China? And then, you know, throw U.S. in the mix. How does that look? It's kind of a triad of complication. Russia and China, they cooperate on economic policy. Russia is a natural trading partner for China. Russia is resource rich. China is resource hungry. And the Russians have increased their energy exports and steel exports to to China. That's been a mutually advantageous relationship. They've increased security relations in a big military exercise in 2018. About 3,000 Chinese soldiers actually took part working along Russian counterparts in a big military exercise. That was unprecedented. And Putin and Xi get along very well personally. They seem to have a good relationship. At the same time, China does not quite see Russia as an equal, strictly in the, in the sense of the economy. And they've done a lot to ensure that they have multiple sources of energy so that Russia is not in a position to hold up energy supplies in case of any kind of dispute. China is making inroads into Central Asia which traditionally had been an area where Russia had been powerful, and even into the Balkans. Ukraine and Serbia, their number one trading partner is now China, not Russia. So it's a relationship that involves elements of cooperation. There is a sense that they don't want to stab each other in the back, but they're also recognize each other as competitors, and they're not going to go out of their way to help each other. Relations between Beijing and Moscow are better than they've been in the past, in part because relations with the U.S., both countries have not been great. And there is something of a marriage of convenience between the two. I guess I'm going to ask you for two moments of crystal ball. One is, what's going to happen to Navalny? Uh, My guess is his sentence of two and a half years will be extended when it ends initially, and that he will serve another longer jail term and will likely be in jail until Putin is out of power. Holy mackerel. But he will stay alive because the alternative is unpopular? Yeah. The thing to explain with Navalny is not why he was put in jail. I mean, autocrats, this is what they do to their political opponents, given the chance. The trick is to explain why he was able over the course of a decade, to be this incredibly gifted fundraiser, anti-corruption activist who was able to speak to a generation of Russians and stay out of jail and to stay alive. And for a long time, I think Putin saw Navalny as better off outside of jail than inside of jail because he didn't want to make a martyr out of him. And he could withstand Navalny's challenge because he was popular, the economy was doing well, propaganda was working, foreign policy was working. All of those things are much less effective today than they were four or five years ago when Navalny had a much freer reign. But now that he's lost 
those other tools, he's had to rely a lot more on repression. And as a result, now Navalny is seen as better off as a martyr than being active politically. That's the calculation as I see it. So the other crystal ball, we I just got to ask, do you see any path forward in the next couple of decades if Putin remains in charge for a tighter relationship and a reasonably, let's say, detente or a coexistence between the U.S. and Russia? I mean, one could see small steps leading to limited gains to create a more stable relationship in Europe with Ukraine being the key issue there, trying to find some security guarantees that would allow Ukraine to be able to defend itself and to encourage Russia to withdraw its troops and materiel from eastern Ukraine and really seal off that border. That is a very difficult problem, but that is one that would really be transformative in the relationship. I mean, Putin has a choice to make. The increased level of repression that we've seen in the last five years and the much more assertive foreign policy have held Russia's economy back because of sanctions, because the assertive foreign policy has entrenched the status quo. His cronies, who have no interest in seeing a more efficient and prosperous Russian economy, right? But at the same time, this saps Russia's power on the global stage because its economy is flatlining. Growth is on the order of 1%, and it's competing with countries that are growing much more quickly. So at some point, should oil prices stay low? Should Russia's position be such that Russia's global position were threatened? You know, it's conceivable that Putin might begin to introduce some moderate economic reforms, clearly in the aim of increasing Russia's, stabilizing Russia's global position, which in the future will decline without some kind of serious attention to the economy. Do the people of Russia feel that way that you just described, or is that just evident to the folks in charge? No, I think that's true as well. I mean, one thing that the Putin administration has failed to do in the last decade is to create the kind of economic dynamism that would raise standard of living in Russia. I mean, standards of living in Russia are about 10% lower today than they were a decade ago. And Russians really feel that. And they blame the Russian government for that. They don't have a lot of tools to do a lot about it. They don't have, uh, you know, free elections where they could swap out the leaders. But, you know, in small ways, they can make it difficult for the Kremlin to govern. It's much more difficult if you have to repress people in order to stay in power rather than rely on things like personal popularity, propaganda, and a growing economy. Tim, I hope you'll come back and join us. Uh, This was incredibly interesting. Professor Timothy Fry, check out his book, Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. Can I assume that's uh, an Amazon available book? Is that right, Tim? Available through Amazon, available as an audio book. And this book was a labor of love. Professor Fry, we really appreciate your directness too here today. How can we follow you going forward? You can follow me uh, at Twitter. I'm at Timothy M. Fry. This book is the first book that I've written for a general audience, and uh, I'm hoping to do more of that in the future because the whole goal of this book was to take this great academic research 
that we've done on Russia over the last 20 years and translate it for a general audience. So I think readers will find a, a view of Russia that is new to them, and I hope they'll find it interesting. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And of course, a special thanks again to Jane Albrecht, who's coming to us today from Washington, D.C., and for all you do to forward the point to this show, Jane. Thank you. And to you listening, don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around for the next episode of Meet Me in the Middle. And thank you to our producer and editor, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpert. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. It will be okay. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.